Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space and welcome to episode 165. I'm your host, Mark Shapiro, and I am delighted to welcome Dr. Judy Melanek and TJ Mitchell to Explore the Space for episode 165. Judy is a forensic pathologist, TJ is a professional writer, and they are the co-authors of a really fun and just excellent new book called First Cut. This is actually their second book together. Their first one is called Working Stiff. If you have not read Working Stiff, you should definitely check it out. It is nonfiction. First Cut is their foray into writing about fiction. And the book is wonderful. Full disclosure, this episode is a spoiler-free zone. Definitely check out the book. You will not hear any spoilers about the book. We will definitely hear more about the character that they have created, Dr. Jesse Tesca. It's great. You're going to really like it. But what we get into in this conversation is one of the things that comes up on Explore the Space from time to time, and I love it. And that's the subject of collaboration. Judy and TJ really take us on a great ride, a great behind-the-scenes tour of how they collaborated to write a book, how they put their skills next to one another to really get something special, the barriers that crop up, the different tools and techniques they use, especially things that I just love like storytelling and integrating food and just all the right stuff. It's just fantastic. I caught them in the middle of their press junket, and I think the book is doing really well. It's getting fantastic reviews. It's also just great to see docs doing fun stuff like this, writing new works of fiction and putting them out there. But it's really getting into that essence of this collaboration that just, it's its so much fun and it fits so nicely with the ecosystem of Explore the Space. Before we get to the show, speaking of the ecosystem, please check out the archive. There's 165 episodes, just premium content with unbelievable guests. I'm really proud of, of what's being built here and of all of the amazing people that have come on the show. Please do go back, take a look, see what's interesting, www.explorethespaceshow.com. If you ever have the opportunity to share Explore the Space with any of your friends, colleagues, family members, word of mouth is really still the best driver. Any opportunities you have to tell somebody who doesn't know about Explore the Space what's going on here and to check it out, really, really appreciate that. You can find us on all your favorite podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, you name it. I'm very active on social media, as I always like to share at the top of these episodes, and find me on Twitter at ETS Show. Find me on Instagram at Explore the Space Show. I'm very active there. And as always, please email me, Mark at ExploreTheSpaceShow.com. I love hearing from people who are listening to the show. This is a different episode. This is a little bit different because we are catching someone on their junket, and it's a it's a work of fiction, which obviously, look, we love this stuff. It's so entertaining. This book is so detail-oriented. It's such a just a rollicking good time. It's a great ride. And the way that they did it, it's the right way. And there's some really great lessons for us all to learn around collaboration, teamwork, communication. I just love it. This is a really fun conversation. I think you're going to really enjoy it. I had an absolute blast speaking with Judy and TJ. So without further ado, Dr. Judy Melanek and TJ Mitchell. Judy and TJ, welcome to Explore the Space. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having us, Mark. Really a pleasure. You are in the middle of a press junket. What is a press junket like? Judy, I want to start with you. What is a press junket like? It's a little overwhelming. Yeah. Uh, you go from one bookstore to another, sometimes in disparate cities. So you have 
to make it from one place to the next. And you uh, talk about your book, answer questions, sign books, and meet some amazing people, uh, many of whom you've met before, but in social media. So that's been kind of a, a new thing for us is meeting people in real life that originally met on Twitter. I think there's a hashtag for that, Motorola or something. Met, yes, yeah, met, met on, on Twitter, Twitter then in real life, in real life for yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Mote IRL. Yeah, we, we've been doing a lot of that. And we, do, we really enjoy we really enjoy meeting meeting our readers and prospective readers, so we've been having a good time. So TJ, you mentioned this idea of and what's happening for you guys is meeting your readers You've written books. You're both uh, you're both very accomplished. You're both excellent writers, and you've done this work before. What is the dynamic like when you actually get to meet somebody and reflect a little bit in real time, where they discuss with you the impressions that something you created and put out into the world, how that made them feel? It's different for our two books. Our, our first book was called Working Stiff: Two Years, Two Hundred Sixty Two Bodies, and the Making of a Medical Examiner. That book is nonfiction. It's essentially Judy's memoir when she was training to become a forensic pathologist for the two years that you learn how to do autopsies, one or two years, she did two, um, that you learn to do autopsies, you do it in, um, in the working world. And she kept a diary during that time. And then the two of us turned it into a work of narrative nonfiction. Of course, we can talk to people about what happens in that book. There are no spoilers, really. You know, it really happened. Uh, talking about your detective novel is a little bit different because we don't like to talk about the plot except in generalities, obviously. I'm really looking forward to, uh, I think about a month from now, we have our first appointment with a book club when everybody will have read the book and I can unleash all the spoilers. But that said, we, we also really enjoy talking to people about the process of writing and our writing together and how it gets done. I like that you brought and, up the idea of spoilers and it actually made me smile. I'm the guy that if there's a movie I know I'm not going to see, I'll go to spoilers.com and read them. <laughs> and just full transparency for anyone for for those of you who are listening this will be a spoiler free zone let's just get it out there right. first cut is really good i've read it i really enjoyed it there were ucla shout outs that were much appreciated that will be as far as the spoilers go right now fair enough yeah that sounds good all right that so so judy you got to do something with this book that for me as a, as a, as a physician is not on the radar. And this idea of taking the work that you've done as a professional and turning it into not just a work of fiction, but into a detective novel. It's not that unusual. I mean, the genre already existed. Essentially it was uh, brought forth and popularized by authors such as Kathy Reichs and Patricia Cornwell um, in their cases, their uh, protagonist, uh, Kathy Reich's uh, protagonist is an anthropologist. Patricia Cornwell's is a forensic pathologist. Um, the, the, the detective is uh, a forensic professional. Uh, the difference is, is that Jesse, our protagonist, is a little younger and less experienced. So I wanted to pick up on um, uh, her story, uh, basically when she gets out of fellowship, when she gets out of her initial training, just like uh, as if the end of Working Stiff became fictionalized because Working Stiff was about my training and I wanted to move on with that. We didn't really want to write a sequel to it. Right, Working um, Stiff to the Revenge. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah that, that would, uh, wouldn't have resonated quite the same way. I mean, uh, the genres existed before. I guess what I'm saying is that in terms of creative writing as a hospitalist, for me, I don't know how I would even begin to conceive of that. And that brings us to one of the things that 
we, we discuss a lot on Explore the Space, and it's this idea of collaboration. And that's one of the things that I loved about the experience of the book and following you both on social media and why I wanted to have you on. There's lots of people that write books. I don't interview all of them. I like that this was a collaborative effort. I like that the two of you took skill sets, overlaid them, and created something really, really interesting. TJ, for you, when you think about collaboration as a writer – is it a natural thing or is it something that as a writer you have to work at? I think it depends on the relationship. Uh, the people listening should know if they don't already that we've already collaborated on four children. We are a <laughs> right. couple and parents. Right, and right. in fact, Judy and I, we started collaborating together in college. We met in college and we worked together as a creative team um, in student theater where I was a director and she was a producer. And we really enjoyed doing that. And we really enjoy it now. We enjoy working together as a married couple, but our secret is we have no overlapping skill set. Judy has the stories and she has the imagination to explore them. And I'm one of those people who just loves sitting alone in a room and wrestling with words all day and sweating about where the comma goes. You know, She does not particularly care about that, and I do not have the stories that she has. Oh, and by the way, um, being a forensic pathologist is largely being a detective. I mean, any branch of medicine, yours included has mysteries and has stories with arcs in them. But what Judy does as a forensic pathologist already has quite a lot of detective work in it. So it's not really a stretch to turn that into fiction. Uh, we do take what she does and we mold it into the genre, into the genre of um, noir detective novels in the American tradition. Judy, for you, when you think about this idea, again, of collaboration and taking skill sets that aren't necessarily linked, that don't overlap, but then getting this, this exponential growth out of it, what is the mindset that you carry into that? Obviously, you, you, you have a long background together, but for anybody that's looking to collaborate like this, because it is such an important thing, what is the mindset that you carry into it that is really the rocket fuel that allows you to then create something like first cut for me, it's going to work every day. So yeah. I, I get my ideas from my actual cases because there is a certain degree of frustration that comes from not knowing the resolution of a case. It's not unusual for a forensic pathologist. And this was highlighted in working stiff where I'll do an autopsy and I'll figure out that it's a homicide. And then I will go home and talk to TJ about it. And he goes, well, who did it? And, I go, I don't know. <laughs> and did they catch him? I don't know. Yeah, she uh, says, I don't, I don't go lurking <laughs> around the DA's office. I mean, I've got work to do and so do they. I don't, I don't know. As a storyteller, I found that tremendously uh, frustrating. So we've addressed that in our fiction. We get to finish those stories. You get to exactly. close the stories out yourselves. I like that. Yeah, so, and yeah. I'm, I'm the imaginative one. I'm always thinking about new ideas and new stories. And as TJ said, that's Judy, always thinking. <laughs> and then I throw stories at him. And then he goes, okay, okay, stop talking. I'm going to go right now. <laughs> and then he goes and writes. So that's how we figure out the dynamic between um, original ideas sometimes overwhelming numbers of original ideas yeah. and channeling it down so that it fits the genre and that it propels the story forward. Right. Our fiction does not include actual cases that Judy has done. The cases give her ideas, which we then explore together. And then once we get our characters rolling, I will ask Judy, okay, so what would our, our, our protagonist, her name is Dr. Jesse Tesca. 
I would say, what would Dr. Tesca do here in this situation? And, and Judy would tell me what, what a real forensic pathologist would do. And we take it from there. It's a lot of fun. Well, generally what happens is I tell him what I would do. And then he said, well, that's going to be really boring. So is there anything we can do to like get her out of the office? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so we go back and forth until we come up with a storyline that's uh, both forensically accurate and actually entertaining. <laughs> There's there's another element to this, and as I'm listening to you describe, and I can imagine you get this torrent of ideas over the course of a workday where you're seeing cases and you're, you know, you're reading journals and you're interacting with colleagues. That you're, you know, sometimes you can really crank them out. One of the things that for me is really important in any collaboration is this idea of tempo, and it's it, it, we're not always going to work at the same tempo. We're not always going to generate ideas at the same tempo. We're not always going to hit deadlines in the same way. How do the two of you reconcile this idea of you're going to work at this rate, I'm working at this rate, we know what the goal is, how do we, how do we make sure that we're in lockstep when our individual tempos may not be? We have a variety of ways of doing that. It's, it starts out with us usually taking a walk together uh, and discussing what the story is and where it's going to go. And that's when Judy is able to to give me ideas that I then sit down and explore. I do the long-term work because this is my day job and she's off being a doctor of doing the right. But then I have this great advantage that, that other writers will be jealous of. I never have the fear of a blank page. When I get somewhere in the story and I get to the end of a beat, I know where I need to get to, but I don't know what happens in between. I just, I just email Dr. Melanick and usually we email back and forth, but we might call. We do a lot of work by email because we tend not to be in the same place. And also because of our children, you know, when we are in the same place, we're usually talking to each other about the children or the children about themselves. So we can then collaborate to fill in those gaps. And then I I sit down again and, and keep writing. Yeah. So we're not really actually working simultaneously on the book. What we're doing is we're passing it back and forth. So it's a little bit more like a relay race where he works on it and then he passes the baton to me and then I work on it, pass it on to him. And when he's done with a certain section, usually after um, two or three days work, he comes home and makes dinner. And while he's making dinner, I read the book or what he's written most recently out loud to him as he's cooking and then if I want to make any revisions, I make them first thing in the morning, email them to him, and then he picks them up while I'm at, in the morgue. Or if I want to make revisions, I just tell Judy to stop and then shout the matter while I'm chopping vegetables <laughs> or whatever. And that, that's, that having, having Judy read it out loud is very, very productive for both of us because uh, our detective novels are written in the first person and the, the protagonist is a heroine. So hearing a woman read it out loud in her own voice helps me as a writer. And uh, it means that, that Judy has, has read the entire book already out loud to me. I was like vibrating in my chair listening to that. There's two specific things that, that I really want to pull out because that was so fun to hear. One of them, I'm just going to lay them both out and then we're going to work through them. One of them is quick and easy. TJ, you said novels. That was plural. So my expectation is that this is one of a series where this character gets to have further adventures. Yes? That's correct. The second book in the series is called Crosscut. We are working on it now, and it will be on bookshelves uh, about this time next year. That's good to hear. All right. So then, Judy, for you, the other part that I I really want to pull out of what you were discussing and you shared this, the idea of the oral tradition, the idea of storytelling, 
the idea of how we exchange ideas between each other simply through the act of speech, the fact that you're reading what he's written to him as part of the creative experience, I absolutely love that. Did you come to that naturally? Was that something you both agreed on? I, I just could not think of a better way in this collaborative effort to say, this is how we're going to do it because at least in, in my life, the act of reading is it's fun. It's intimate. It's you're in that place. You're focused. It, it's all these positive things. How did you come to that as a tool? Mostly it was just the practical aspect of the end of the day when I came home from work from yeah. the coroner's office and TJ had been finished with whatever he was writing. We had to make dinner. And that was the time that we had together before the kids came to sit down with us. And then we would have to be dealing with family issues until the end of the night. We had this window of time of about an hour as he's cooking, <laughs> which was the only way we could do it. So because he's standing by the stove, he's the cook in the family, by the way. He, he was a, uh, TJ was a stay-at-home dad for many years while I was in medical school and residency. Or no, actually, we have our kids in residences. So residency and then uh, fellowship. He was. Well, I, I still am a stay at home dad, dad, but now now our kids are teenagers. But I was I was a full time stay at home dad for twelve years. Okay. Right. And he was, and as a result, he was the primary uh, cook and purchaser of food <laughs> and meal planner. So because we had this hour or so interval during which time he'd be cooking, and I I would normally want to catch up on what he's been working on when I was reading it quietly. I I would give him feedback and then he'd say, but what was this about? So then it naturally happened that he would just say, just read it out loud. Yeah, it's, it's more efficient as, as <laughs> in, in the use of our time collaborating for Judy to read it out loud and for me to hear it again than for me to stand there impatiently waiting for her to read it with a red pen. And also, I think it helps that uh, although I, I'm, I've always been a writer, I also have training. We both have training in theater and I also have training in film. So hearing it read out loud lights up different parts of my brain than when I'm sitting down and looking at the words. This is an important question. What, what was the menu that got us through the writing of first cut? What were the key dishes that popped up again and again? We're at a pivotal point in the book. We've got a really important section that we've got to discuss. What food would you make? Or was there anything specific where you say, this is what we need for tonight? I'm an Italian-American. In addition to, well, from reading the book, you, you might have guessed that, that both of us are Polish-Americans. Our, our protagonist uh, speaks Polish. She's a Polish-American. Her mom is from Poland. I'm also an Italian-American and an Irish-American. I tend to steer away from Irish food. <laughs> For good reason. <laughs> I cook a lot of Italian food, and I've, I've got a great spaghetti meatballs recipe. that every, It's one of the things that everyone will eat in our family. Another one of my favorite recipes, actually, being here in San Francisco is, uh, is a broiled piece of salmon with the skin on that I just really love. And, with the soy. Um, yeah, oh. but two of, our, two of our kids won't eat that. So, you know, we, yeah. we, uh, we, we pick our battles. <laughs> so when Crosscut comes out and we do this again, we'll do it in person and I'll come over for dinner. Sweet. Okay. Lock yes, it sir. in. Because we don't live that far apart. I, I'll, be, I'll, I'll make that sacrifice. I'll make that drive. That's okay. Excellent. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Judy, when you do the work... How much of it do you feel comfortable discussing when you're back at work, when you're, when you're writing a work of fiction around your professional work? Is there a boundary? Is there a comfort level? Or is it open season to discuss what you're doing uh, and either pull some punches or not pull any punches at all? I want the fiction to be accurate. So with regards to the scientific accuracy of the work, that's pretty much spot on. 
Um, I have to say that some of the political intrigue that happens, not just in First Cut, but in what we project for the remainder of the series, is actually informed by uh, things that either I experienced myself or my colleagues have experienced, because working in a medical examiner or coroner's office is an inherently political job. You're making determinations of cause and manner of death, sometimes in cases where people have died um, in a very high-profile way, um, either because there was a crime or because the individual um, is a celebrity, for instance. So you're under a lot of pressure to make the right determination and do it as quickly as possible. There are pressures being put upon you by your immediate supervisors, pressures obviously being put upon you by the family, um, who wants to know the answer? Um, sometimes it's attorneys or the police. So it makes for really good fiction to call it out for what it is and show a protagonist having to deal with those pressures, whether they deal with it well or not. Um, I think it highlights it for the public because it's not it's not something you always see in uh, fiction. Fiction tends to propel the plot along with regards to the you know the who done it in the story and the pressures that an individual might be under um, might not necessarily make it make the cut. And that's something that I'm intimately aware of. Have you found that as a physician who then shares some of these stories, cause they are a look behind the curtain. Mm-hmm. Do you get the response where people welcome that sort of light being shown? Do you get some pushback? Is it a mix? You know, I I can't answer that yet because I don't think First Cut's been out long enough to get feedback from my colleagues. I know with regards to Working Stiff, a lot of um, my colleagues were really happy that I told the story. I mean, it's happy is the word, but in the sense that you know, when we touched upon some of the stresses that we're under with, uh, you know, in Working Stiff, there was a, a, a case where a family member couldn't accept her son's death as an accident and kept calling me over and over to try to get me to change the death certificate or, re- or reopen the case. All of us in my uh, profession are aware of those kind of situations. So I think people were appreciative of discussing that in an open forum so that people were aware of the kind of uh, stresses or pressures that me- we might be under. Judy trained in New York City during uh, the events of Working Stiff. That's what it's about. It's about New York. She started her training in July of 2001. So when September 11th of 2001 happened, Judy was working as a New York City medical examiner, and she's one of the 30 people who identified the remains of the World Trade Center bombing. We explored that in the book, and the thing that I am happy, or, or I, was, I was glad that we were able to explore in that chapter, is what a collaborative effort. Yeah forensic pathology is in general, but yeah. especially forensic pathology after a mass casualty event is, is a team effort. And we, we tried to reflect that and we hope that we succeeded. Are there ever places, TJ, where when you hear stories and Judy sends you the email that says, this is what I'm thinking, this is what I've seen today, this is what I'm working on, where it, it doesn't land because it's so bizarre, it's so outlandish, you know, we work in a field where these things happen, where they just beggar description sometimes. Are there ever moments where you just say that that's not going to resonate with an audience because it's, it's just too far outside of reality. It happened. I acknowledge that fully. This is too far beyond the pale of what people, what a readership will be able to take on board. Definitely. The truth is stranger than fiction. Yeah, It really is true. And there are, there are many times that Judy will tell me a story. I'll be like, 
well, we can never use that one. No, <laughs> nobody would believe it. Really. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But that doesn't keep us from, you know, as they say on uh, television or the movies being inspired by it in terms of using elements, whether it the forensic facts, the scientific rigor, some aspect of the case to inspire our imaginative work. That must be a tricky line to navigate, though, where if you see something interesting and share it and then TJ, from your side, it's this is too far outside, but maybe we can move it in a slightly different direction to make sure that you maintain the integrity of that central scientific theme, that central patient experience. I At this point, you both have become very good at it. That must have taken some practice, though. Oh, yeah, but uh, you, you're mistaken if you think I'm good at it. Judy keeps me honest. <laughs> uh, and she, we never cut cor- corners on the science. The science that you read in first cut is real. It really is I, I, what, what Judy and her colleagues would do. And there are many times where I'll say, can't we just do this? And can't we just do that? And can't we hurry up the talks a little bit toxicology report? Yeah. Uh, she won't let me No, And I'm always glad that she won't let me because in the end it makes for, for a much more compelling story. So then Judy, this is going to be the challenge, right? Fingers crossed this gets optioned into a movie and the script doctors come wandering into the room. That that's going to be a moment for you, right? Well, at the point that it does get optioned, and by the way, Working Stiff did get optioned twice and has now reverted back to us. So, I mean, that, that is a poss- it is a, a possibility. We just, we're, we're just happy that people would be reading the book. I mean, the book is, is our work. The book is our baby. Yeah, the way we've always looked at it, we looked at Working Stiff the same way, and I still feel this way, is both books are our work that we're very proud of and we work very hard on. If somebody else would like to interpret those in a different medium, great. We will try to be supportive and we will fall back on encouraging people always to read the book. I hope. Yeah. But ultimately, ultimately I'm already known. I'm already on the record for being critical of television shows. Uh, TJ and I wrote a blog post called seven CSI fails. And if you want to send me the link to it, so you could share it with your audience. And it's about the seven things that drive me the most crazy when we watch. Uh, it's not just CSI, it's NCIS. It's all of the fictional forensic shows. Uh, first and foremost, uh, the fact that they're always shot in the dark. And right. even in the morgue, they're using flashlights when, um, as you well know, you can't do pathology without bright lights, just like in a laboratory, because otherwise you can't see the evidence. You can't see anything. Exactly. Exactly. That is, that is a provocative rabbit hole to go down the, the intrinsic flaws of media portrayals of medicine. And oh so that, God, it's a nightmare. It's, I mean, it's, it's just extraordinary. One of my favorite shows has been totally corrupted because one of the main characters is running and gunning in the streets of some foreign city because he's a spy and he has critical aortic stenosis and he had a syncopal episode. No, you're kidding me. And then he continues to be out there running and gunning. And I'm like, look, I'm happy to suspend disbelief, but that guy's six month mortality is so like, he's not out there like that. That just doesn't work. And for me, what did it was ER. I remember when ER came out, I was in medical school at the time. I think it was in my third or fourth year. Totally. And I kept on watching Noel Wiley cracking people's chest open and going, they don't let me do that. Am I supposed to do that now? I get that. So I was in, I think I was in high school when ER came out and I would watch it with my dad. He's a he's a nephrologist, and he would just sit there going, "No, they don't do that. No, oh, that's ridiculous." And, you know, I was yeah, like, "Fine, like Dad, look, just stop, okay? I get it, but the show is super cool, and just let, you know, let me enjoy it." And now I'm the same. I'm the curmudgeon watching, going, "No way!" And my wife was like, "Sweetheart, I get it. He has he has a- aortic stenosis. Can he just run and gun for a minute? It's thirty more minutes." <laughs> but you know, it, it does it does happen that movies and especially now television shows do act 
add to the experience of reading a book sometimes. They do expand the world of that book sometimes. That would be fabulous if that happened to J- Dr. Jesse Tesca. I, I, I would uh, I'd be very happy with that. But uh, we'd be happy with anything that anybody made of it, really. Are there any archetype characters that informed both of you growing up? Because I get the sense that you're similar to me, right? You enjoy your fiction, you enjoy your pop culture, you enjoy your movies, and you've read a lot. Are there any sort of archetype characters, right? The the um, the Jack Reachers, the these sorts of people that inform you creating a new character for a wide audience. Well, I mean, if you're asking me about what inspired me in, in popular media, it wasn't Quincy, even though people always ask me that. Um, <laughs> the reason I, I was not enthralled with Quincy was because he was really not a pleasant guy. He was kind of curmudgeonly. Yeah. If I had to pick an archetype forensic pathologist, it would probably be the one played by Gillian Anderson on The X-Files. Oh, um, good one. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, you watched her do autopsies and she was skeptical, but um, even within the construct of the fantasy of that show, uh, she was always a professional and I yes. liked that about her. The fundamentals were very sound. Yes. That fact, was a great call. Pin, I hadn't I thought of her. I love it. Oh, yeah, it's our first X-Files reference. Up. Right on. I'm, I'm delighted. Yeah. Uh, no. So, I, I mean, if I had to pick one that would be her and you know people often ask me like which tv show gets the forensics right you know if i had to pick one in terms of the fictional forensic shows um if i had to pick one it would actually be the early first seasons of law and order because um law and order the police investigate crimes and the district attorneys prosecute the offenses and the medical examiner usually just showed up for one scene gave the information to the police, and then the police went and investigated based on what the medical examiner said. So you don't have the forensic pathologist running around investigating the crimes. They're just part of an investigation and that everybody plays their individual role. And they also showed the pathologist testifying, which I thought was really cool. You don't get to see that in a lot of television shows. TJ, for you, same kind of idea. As you're sitting down to work through your creative process, knowing that at the end of the day, Judy's going to read it back to you, Who and what were the things that you were like, these are themes, these are people, these are kind of motifs that I've seen and read over the years that I want to start to fold in? What were the important ones for you? Well, as I said, the, the, our novels are, are in the American noir tradition. And uh, my favorite of the, of the classic detectives is Lou Archer, as, as written by Ross MacDonald. Uh, and, but but the, other, the other classic detectives, I... I also, love and hate. There, there are things about there are things about uh, Raymond Chandler's work that, that that I love, and things about that I don't particularly like. Like anybody else reading reading the classics, so it, I did enjoy taking those archetypes and working them into a female forensic pathologist in a contemporary San Francisco. How much does the idea of activism you had mentioned a little bit earlier judy touching on some political themes and figuring out how to incorporate that how does that idea fit into this one to into working stiff into crosscut and what is to come how much motivation and how enthusiastic are 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 both of you but judy we'll start with you this idea of taking items that are sort of on the palette now that are touch points and and making that part of the work 
So when you're asking that question, you're talking about like political activism. I just want to clarify. Yeah, political activism, social activism, things that, you know, whether it's climate change or gun violence or upcoming presidential elections or local elections, anything that would sort of fold into that milieu. Is there is there is there a, a level of motivation to include that in the work? One of the things that is important to us include in, to include in the work is things that are going on in its setting in San Francisco. This is a San Francisco book. That's where we live. Where neither of us is from this city. It's our adopted city, and we really love it. And we like to explore everything about San Francisco, the upsides and the downsides and the dark sides. So whatever Jesse is experiencing in San Francisco has to really resonate with us as something that we want to explore also. And we're touching on themes that are basically touched on in the newspaper every day. So uh, one of the plot lines in uh, First Cut involves uh, the opioid epidemic, which is in the newspaper on a daily basis. I see it every day in my morgue. We also we or touch on intellectual uh, property and technology. Uh, we live in a high-tech city with a lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of startups. So that informs us um, with regards to the population that I treat, but also how crime occurs in the city. It tends to be a little bit more high-tech than in other places. Yeah. So we touch on that as well. I mean, for me, as a forensic pathologist, and this informs both my fiction and our nonfiction, and also just my job my, my role in the public sphere as a forensic pathologist is I really respect and emphasize the aspect of my job that involves public health, that we're not just, you know, relegated to the morgue working silently and quietly where nobody knows what we're doing. We have to generate reports. We have to testify in court. We have to speak out about potential dangers. I think we have a responsibility to do that as guardians of the public health, because we are part of uh, that system to not just do autopsies, but also to inform the public so that we could prevent other deaths. I, I appreciate the clarity with which you laid that out, because I first started following you on social media, and you have a lot of followers on Twitter, <laughs> around November of 2018, and this was around the time that the National Rifle Association made an assertion that physicians should stay in our lane around the issue of gun violence. And I think you and I are on the same page as are many, many others. Gun violence in the United States is a public health emergency. And you made a statement on Twitter that resonated with me when you wrote, and I, I pulled it up. Do you have any idea how many bullets I pull out of corpses weekly? This isn't just my lane. It's my fucking highway. And for me, that landed. I said, this is someone who I want to learn from. I want to follow because this is the volume. This is the way we need to speak about this public health emergency, not political issue, not partisan issue, an issue that is affecting Americans every single day. That really resonated. And I, and I appreciate that not only are you able to be that outspoken on social media, but that you are able to interpret that into a book that's really good and hopefully is really successful because then it's going to have that reach. Then it's going to really have those long fingers that reach out and touch. I think it's an important role that we play as physicians that we recognize that doctor means teacher. We're educators. Yeah. And it's not just about healing people and fixing 
the people who come into our emergency room or or, uh, uh, hospital damaged and injured. It's also we have a role to play in uh, preventative medicine and preventing them from getting there in the first place, either by educating them directly or by speaking out in the public about hazards that are out there, whether those hazards are the drinking and driving, or whether they are uh, toys that might be a, ha- a choking hazard, or whether it's access to weapons for people who are mentally ill or in distress. When Judy, when Judy made that that res- response to that tweet, she was going into the morgue to perform yeah. an autopsy on someone who had um, died by suicide with a handgun, and. and Two days before, she had gone into the morgue to do an autopsy on someone who had been killed by another person in a homicide with a gun. So that's that's two in one week. She sees a lot. She sees a lot of it. And, um, and I, I and haven't I'm, seen it yeah. make her cynical at all. Yeah, and I'm not the only pathologist, by the way. I, the answer to the question, how many bullets, for that week, it was about six, if I remember correctly. The first wow. one was five. Multiple gunshot wound. Um, if I if I remember correctly, it was a multiple gunshot wound homicide earlier in the week, and then that morning when I wrote that tweet, it was a suicide by a gun. And so that was the answer for that week. Other weeks it's less. Other weeks it's more. But I'm only one of four forensic pathologists in my office, so I, I was I was only speaking about myself. I wasn't even speaking about my colleagues and what our office sees as a, a general uh, workflow. Um, that involves gun violence. And that's true all over the country. And those of us who are not exposed to what forensic pathologists do in the morgue, we don't even hear about it. No. You don't you don't hear about gunshot suicides in the newspaper. It doesn't make the newspaper. Half of the homicides in a big city don't make the newspaper. So it really is an epidemic. You're right that that's, that's the right word for it. So it's for you then, epidemic. TJ, is it important to, as you're exchanging ideas and kind of creating these stories, do you try to fuel... Judy's your you know obvious commitment to teaching and to educating and to trying to serve the public good do you try to prompt and fuel that no the only thing that I try to do is reflect accurately what she does in the morgue and what Jesse Tesco would do in the morgue and explore the story in that context yeah our fiction is not meant to be a polemic I mean we're not trying to necessarily uh advocate no but then again because it does have to do with death in a big american city yeah. it is going to touch on these things i didn't find it that it landed part. that the story itself landed like that at all i i i think that the way you fold this stuff in is there i'm obviously reading it through a, right i have a little bit of anchoring bias because i've read the tweet many times i've shared it i've talked about it it's come up in other podcast episodes yeah. that i've done with other people so I, I have a sense of, of the importance that this carries for you too, but I didn't feel like the book comes from left, right, center, up, or down. It's it's a work of fiction. Yeah. And- yeah. My, my main ethic as a writer is to provide you as the reader with between eight and 12 hours of entertainment, depending on how fast you read, that you feel is worth your money. That's mostly what I want to do, and, and, and I hope that we are doing that. If you, you get something else out of the story along the way, that's a bonus. And for me, it's to make sure that the science is as accurate I can as it can be, uh, given the constraints of the noir genre. Right, right. I, I think it's, I think it's really exceptional. This book was fun for me for a lot of reasons. Obviously, it's a great story. A great story is always just fun, like you say. It's entertaining, and it kind of takes you out of yourself for a bit. 
I, I loved as I'm reading this, thinking about this idea of collaboration and hearing the two of you discuss the collaborative process that you used is really wonderful. It's really inspiring. The idea, the concept of collaboration, the tools that we can use to drive collaboration, it's been a recurring theme on Explore the Space, and this is like apex-level stuff. So hearing the two of you share it like this and talk about it and hearing that there's more to come, that's really great, and I really appreciate you coming on and talking about it with me. Oh, great. Thank you, Mark. Thanks a lot. And I do want to add one more thing is that you know, all doctors do this to some degree. Every time you do rounds in the morning and the resident or the um, a medical student has to present a case to an attending, we train them to tell the story in a succinct way that uh, touches on the most important highlights. And whether it's fiction or nonfiction, that's what a good writer is supposed to be doing. No, you're right. It's a, it's a cornerstone of the work that we do. I have an appreciation for you, the two of you having the ability to extrapolate that into a whole other plane, making it fun, making it accessible, and translating it in a manner that's going to hopefully reach a lot of people. I, I just think it's fantastic. Thanks so much. Thank you. This was really fun. Next time, we're going to do it around the dinner table. I'll, I'm going to place my order for the spaghetti and meatballs now. <laughs> All well, right. actually, we should do pizzas because we have a backyard pizza oven, and, yeah. and we make our own pizza, too. Yeah, yeah I'm going to do that one then. I'm, can I change my order? It's not too late, right? <laughs> no, it's All never right. too late. You guys, this was wonderful. I, I hope the rest of the junket goes smoothly, and I, I hope the book goes to all of the heights that you hope for it. This was a total treat. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.